Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is the last episode, I believe, that we recorded at the Combined Sections meeting back in February in New Orleans. So we had so many great episodes. So if you missed them, go back and listen to all of them. I think they're like 15. Uh, thanks to all of the guest co-hosts who stepped up and inter- did some fabulous interviews for me. I totally appreciate it. And in today's episode, not really a guest co-host, but a guest coordinator of this episode. So this was put together by physical therapy student Matthew Viegas. He is also the host of the Capable Body podcast, which is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And the podcast aims to bridge the gap between healthcare providers and real people with real stories. So Matthew reached out to myself and to Sandy Hilton on Facebook and asked if we could come together to answer students' questions about pain, and that's exactly what we did. And if you're not familiar with Sandy Hilton, she is the co-owner of Entropy Physical Ther- Physiotherapy in Chicago. She has worked in multiple settings across the U.S. with neurologic and orthopedic emphasis, combining these with a focus in pelvic rehab for pain and dysfunction since 1995. She teaches health professionals and community education classes on returning to function following back and pelvic pain and teaches all over, at this point, all over the world. She's also the co-host of Pain, Science, and Sensibility, a podcast on the application of research into the clinic. So Matthew reached out to us to see if we would come together to answer people's questions about pain and he and other students that were with us had some really fabulous questions. So we talk about how psychology and culture can impact someone's pain experience, managing expectations and celebrating small wins with patients with CRPS, which is a tough diagnosis, self-care tips to prevent empathy, burnout, and physical therapy, and the importance of interprofessional collaboration to best manage persistent pain patients, and a lot more. So was, uh, they had great questions. Sandy and I were happy to answer to the best of our abilities. So I hope you all enjoy today's episode. All right. Hi, I'm Sandy Hilton. I'm the, the point of the question was, you have a background in pain science, so yes, I'll answer that, but then I laughed and said, what does that mean? Because here in the States, we don't really have a certification body or anyone that, that gives us. There's a master science in pain in England, and there's some programs in Australia that teach that. Here in the States, we're picking up the information through really good continuing ed courses and reading and going to conferences, and um, but we don't have any formalized tracks at the moment for doing that um, outside of continuing education. So uh, probably became, um, it is very uncomfortable for me to call myself an expert in pain science um, because I know some of them that do research in this. Um, But I will say that it is certainly a passion and and I think I'm fairly good at it, um, which for me is pretty big to say. But uh, that's from studying and taking classes and finding the researchers and asking them questions. I spent lunch talking to one of the pain researchers here 
uh, with questions from the clinic of, I've been thinking about this, what do you think about that? How does that match with the research you've done lately? And that's the way we keep up with what do we know is best and how do we then take that information and make it match uh, what we can do in the clinic? Because that, that layer of transition is another really interesting um, problem because everyone learns differently and pain's a uniquely individual experience. Yeah, and, and I would probably echo what Sandy said is that I don't in any way think I'm a pain expert. I don't do the research. I just read the research and I talk to a lot of who I would consider are people experts in the topic of pain science because they're the ones doing a good majority of the research. But what I like to do is be able to take that research and then transition that into the clinic and into my own life. So, I mean, a lot of people know may know this or may not. I don't talk about it too much here and there, but, you know, I had sort of chronic neck pain for, for mm, almost a decade. So, because of that experience, I've been able to carry that over into treating my patients and have not only a certain amount of empathy, but a lot of sympathy for them as well, because I've certainly been in their shoes for, for a really, really long time. Um, and so I can really understand very intimately the psychological aspects of having persistent pain and what it does to you as a person and to you as a clinician and how it kind of deteriorates large swaths of your life, because it does. And so when you're working with those patients with persistent pain, it's important to recognize that it's different than treating someone with an acute injury. You know, so if you're working with football players, it's different than seeing that football player after they've had you know, an ACL or, or a break or something like that. And, but at the same time, I'm sure there's plenty of, I would assume, professional athletes with persistent pain. So that's sort of my background and Sandy's background. So um, we'll just kind of have you guys ask some questions and we will answer them to the best of our ability. So if you have questions based on the science behind the pain, we'll take a stab at it. Um, if you have questions from a personal standpoint on what it's like as a patient, I'm also happy to answer those as best I can. Uh, my name's Brandon. I'm a current uh, third year student at the University of Miami, and I'm here at CSM asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> so one question I have that I've seen with pain patients is sometimes it seems it's more um, psychological and also environmental, where sometimes someone may not be as in much pain as, or it seems like they're in more pain than they think they are because it's the environment around them is like their family members are like, oh my God, my baby's hurt. What am I going to do? Or something like that. So what have you seen like psychologically, emotionally, and from that family support side when it comes to pain? Um, this is, this is Sandy. I think pretty strongly that we, we should approach a person from the very, very first encounter from a, the biopsychosocial whole person concept. And what we're, what I do on an evaluation is try and figure out where the components are of that. that we all, every single person lives in the environment they live in, and there's different layers of, of how that impacts your current challenge. So um, the best way to figure that out is to ask them. And there are some really good standardized forms that help me give information on that. Um, there's a lot. depends on your patient population. I work predominantly in persistent pain and in 
pelvic health as well. So I use the pain catastrophizing scale, um, the DAS, which is a depression and anxiety scale, the... Um, the Arobro. There's a, the Fremantle scale. There's a, there's a lot of different really well-developed things to get a, get a picture of that. Um, but... And those are supposed to be used to drive practice. So it's not just, hey, you filled out this form, yay, I'll have you fill those out again on discharge and show progress. It's We actually go over them with the patients. Of, of uh, So I see you're spending an awful lot of time thinking about this, which is the rumination, magnification, and helplessness that you can find from the pain catastrophizing scale um, when you break it down. Uh, those guide treatment. So I'd be able to pick up something like that to say, let's give you some things to make that easier. If it's family concerns or the things your family are telling you that's making it a challenge for you, how can we either help you negotiate that or get you in touch with another professional that might be able to help you negotiate that? Because for sure, family members can make things easier or harder. Um, they're rarely neutral. Uh, and, and it does impact patients, uh, how they're going to go. So the best way is just to ask. I don't have a standard answer to that because it's going to be different for every person, but it is certainly part of treatment, and we look at it from the very first day. Okay. Yeah. Follow, did that answer it? Yeah, and then when you have patients with CRPS, have you had patients with CRPS, and how do you um, treat those patients? So that's a big majority of my patients are CRPS patients. So when you're seeing patients with CRPS, one of the most important things is to remind them uh, that it is you're in for the long haul. You know, it is you you may not see progress from month to month, but you may see it year to year with some patients if depending on the severity of that CRPS. What I try and do is just a, a I have used graded motor imagery with some patients, not all of them across the board, but with some, and that has been very helpful. I've had patients completely recover from CRPS, which is great, and I've had patients who did not recover, or they did very, very well, and they did great, and then they kind of sort of slid back down again. And so I think one thing when you're dealing with patients with CRPS is it's in no way a linear line whatsoever. I mean, you've probably seen that, you know, the patient starts here and there's a linear line and, oh, they're better, but it's really an up and down and, and uh, all over the place. But I use graded motor imagery. I use, I was using two-point discrimination, but maybe I will not be using that anymore. Um, but I do do a lot of like graphesthesia gra training. I use Tim Gabbett's work on load management. So I load appropriately, and I will have them. So if it's a person, let's say, with a lower extremity, and I want them to walk to their tolerance because walking's normal. So I will look at their acute versus chronic workloads, um, and I look at it in miles. So my patient is wearing a wearable uh, technology, and so we will look at where she is on the chronic workload, maybe a three-week average on how many miles she's doing, and then I will have I will spike her a little bit, maybe twice a week, just to add that a little bit more external load because we have to, you have to expose those patients to more loads, just like you would with any other patient, even if it's a sports medicine patient, but they still need to be 
experiencing those extra loads. And so I don't, like Tim says, like you don't wrap them in cotton wool. So even if they have CRPS, I don't wrap. I mean, I make them do. And then it's just a lot of listening. So sometimes a whole session might be me listening. You know, but maybe listening while they're standing if they have like a lower extremity issue. But it may just be me listening because they had a really difficult week or it feels like I had a patient the other day who said it felt like for some reason it was a little bit more than usual. So it felt like hot nails driving up through the middle of her foot all day long, all day long. I try and use a lot of different approaches, but I try and listen first and foremost and just use some motivational interviewing skills to kind of get the most out of each session and get the most out of them because at the end they're like oh I feel so much better but I feel like we didn't do anything but you did you know you did a lot so I think it depends on the person on that day it's a tough question it is CRPS is a really um really good question because the Besides what we know about the physiology and the changes that, that create that into one of the most hideous pain states, um, it's the extreme, really. Um, everyone then has an individual response to it, and it's possible to overload. So yes, you want to load, but you can actually make them worse. So you have to really be very vigilant. Um, not that we shouldn't be with all our patients, but it is possible by intervening that you make them worse. And you you have to watch that. You have to to inform them that that's not scary. That doesn't mean they're they're never going to get better. It just means whoa, we went too far past that edge. Mm-hmm. So we're going to back this up and reassess and reset our steps. Um, so it's really important that the therapist that's working with them and the whole medical team that's working with them not be I don't know emotionally charged. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh my god, you're worse. Is really not the way that you want to handle that. Um, it, it just take it consistent and be assured and know your stuff, but they don't have to know all of the underlying physiology. You load the information just like you load the physical stress. So we grade exposure to training, we grade exposure to education, we try and keep things um, functional in a, I can handle this, this is enough information, this is enough challenge, I can move to the next step. And you just persistently make it more exposure more back to normal activities. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much there's so much training out there for I mean I don't CRPS is one of the persistent states that I would really recommend if you're going to work with it that you truly understand pain well and understand working with CRPS well because it's it's more than which is the same way I feel with pelvic pain. It's you have to understand pain but you also have to understand the physiology and what's going on with that. Um I couldn't. T- I think CRPS is probably more challenging on a lot of levels than than standard pelvic pain, if there is such a thing, <laughs> the, because there's so much neurophysiology involved that we really don't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's it's difficult, and there's a huge, such a huge psychological aspect to it as well. So uh, every CRPS patient that I work with also works with a pain psychologist because they have to. You know, that is definitely a diagnosis that they really do need to work with um, a pain psychologist. And oftentimes, you know, these might be people who have a history of anxiety and depression to begin with. 
and so that all has to be taken into consideration. It, it's, you know, sometimes if, if you're weighting it, it's probably 33.3% for each. And as a general rule, but on a given day, it could be 95% psycho, 5% bio. It depends on the person and the day, but it's a tough, it is a very, very tough uh, group of people to work with, but it's also super rewarding when they can get past it, if they do. And that's the thing that a, a clinician working with persistent pain of any type needs to be able to do, is, is understand that when they walk in, be able to do a quick little assessment of where are you today, which is often asking them, um, and, yeah, and, and listening. Yeah, and that's what you have to do, is just ask. <laughs> Often times people are like, how do you know how they are day to day? And you're like, you just say, so how are you doing today? <laughs> and they tell you. And usually they tell you. And then from that, you can say, what else? they may say something, and I'll be like, you know, you just said X, Y, and Z. I'd love to go back and talk about that further. What, can you tell me more about that? And that's all you have to say. It's fun when, you know, you'll be, I'll ask that. They'll, they'll tell me. And then we start doing things, and they go, how did you know to do this? And I'm like, you just told me that this is what was bothering you and this is what you were having problems with so we designed something to address that Um, I don't think of that as expert care I think of that as physical therapy normal care but but everyone should be doing that is is ask your person listen to them believe them if they say you know I'm not really terribly fond of the pain scales but I understand that we must document and that's Mm -hmm. how we're told to document but if someone tells you they're a 10 out of 10 that means they're a 10 out of 10 it doesn't mean anything other than they they feel like they hurt at the most they could imagine right now right even if they walked in and walked out and drove there smiling back and whatever they they had jumped over a puddle to get into your office and they say no it's 10 out of 10 then that's what it is and that's it and with with patients with persistent pain um, if that's what they say, then that's what it is. And, and then oftentimes what I find is, and there's something on it today, like there are people who are like much more stoic and people who are a little more emotional about it. And those stoic people, they're the people you worry about. I don't worry about the people who are overly emotional. They're, they're fine. It's the people who are very stoic and who, who I'm fine. <laughs> those are the people you have to worry about. Or, oh, it's, it's a one out of 10. Or, you know, I worry more when people underplay than when they are overly emotional. The overly emotional people, I'm cool with them. It's those people like, nope, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, work is fine, this is fine. Because, like, never in the history of the world, when someone says they're fine, are they fine? (sighs) So. That is really, really a good point. Talk about red flags. Yeah. Those are the, those are the emotional yeah. red flags. And then the, I would say the last thing I would say on that is when you are working with people with CRPS especially is to really make sure that you're acknowledging um, even the smallest thing that they're doing well. And that might be they got out of bed or they walked to the store or they were able to take their child to, to school, like really acknowledge and it's not being, and be like, wow, that's so great that you were able to do that. Let's think about other things you might be able to do along those lines. Right. Because, and it's not being like a rah-rah cheerleader and, and being kind of like weird and fake. It's just acknowledging that even though they have like this world of hurt, that look at all the good things they're able to still do. And that's, that's a big deal from a psychological standpoint. And that can have big carryover into function. Mm-hmm. That's also one of the ways you can get them to, 
to change their thoughts and expectations because we pain is so fantastic at getting our attention and changing our behaviors that's what it's meant to do it's a protective response um, so part of what we do is try and eliminate the need for protection to get you so confident and safe inside yourself and understand that you're safe inside yourself that you don't protect by pain which is an oversimplification of a lot of things um, but part of that is the if you can start to see that man I made it to my appointment as a as a victory and not downplaying it yourself or it's like well I should have also been able to stop at the store on the way home and I should have also been able to do that so to stop shooting all over yourself is a a handy phrase and and claim those victories because when you can start doing that then you can start building on them so it gets into you know some of the sports psychology motivational things of really seeing what progress you've made versus another time and even though you lost that game you actually were better at your you know there's lots of different ways we have to convince ourselves to keep trying in the face of adversity or failure um, for people dealing with pain, that's the same thing, but on a different scale, where just getting to your appointment on this, the right day at the right time is pretty darn amazing. Um, and it's one of the ways you start to see people getting better, because they'll like be so busy they forget, instead of, I'm so in pain I can't remember. And it's like, ah, that's a beautiful distinction. You're getting better. Um, and that's, that's one of the things we want to point out and emphasize. Okay, hello everyone. My name is Matt. I am a third year student at Toro University in Nevada. And so my question is um, regarding the mental health of patients. I guess, how do you sort of challenge, manage your own biases and your own assumptions um, just to help be that raw, raw cheerleader for the patient or whatever it is that they need? Um, how do you, I guess, even when you feel stressed out or burnout or anything, how do you how do you still manage to come through for the patient? Poorly, no. Um, the, the that's that's self care for ourselves, right? That's redundant. Um, but but I will go back to the same things that I tell my my patients to do. Of you you have to get sufficient sleep. There's been some great. Uh, information going around here at CSM about the about sleep and how important it is. Um, there, there's really good evidence out there. You must get seven to eight hours of sleep opportunity a night. It has a significant impact in your health. We need that too. Um, we also need to get the at least a half an hour of activity every day that's purposeful for activity. Um, we have to do that as well. We have to eat real food that's healthy for us um, every day and we have to do something fun that we enjoy every day because um, otherwise you are at as much risk for oversensitivity and more quickly jumping to um, conclusions that aren't supported and all those things we're still just human so we have to take care of that I think it's a really good way to tell if, if stuff starts to agitate me that I am probably not taking good care of myself um, but that's not on the patients that's on me of how good am I at that? And and I think there's also a skill of not taking it home with you. I mean, it's because we care. We're empathetic. We wouldn't be in this field. Um, but it has to not be carried around because you get burned out really fast that way. Of I can help them, but I am not them. And I can help them with their problems, but those are not my problems. Uh, in a kind and compassionate way and if and get them care and all of that. But it is not my role to carry that for them.
that's my role to help them figure out how to do that. Yeah, and I think if you can separate yourself from from the patient in that it is not on you for you to achieve their goals for them. It is the patient's responsibility to achieve their own goals. So if you can separate that and not take it personally, if said goal isn't achieved, um, then that goes a long way from decreasing that chance of burnout. Because when you're dealing with patients with persistent pain, you are hearing like really unfortunate things every day, you know, and, and it's, it's easy to kind of fall into that sort of empathy spiral. You know, we all want to be empathetic, but you don't have to be like a 1000% empath, you know, you just want to be empathetic and you want to be in the moment, of course, but you, to carry that home with you, um, is a problem. So what I usually do, and I mean, I have the luxury of seeing patients for an hour and having a half an hour in between, 20 minutes in between each patient because I see them in their homes. So what I try and do is in between those patients, I, I mean, I can go for a walk or I'll listen to music or I'll do a, um, maybe listen to a meditation app. Um, when you're in a clinic and you have five minutes in between patients, um, something that you can do is sort of a mini meditation or a stealth meditation, if you will. And I sort of got this from um, Sharon Salzberg, who is a meditation teacher based in New York. She's got a lot of amazing books. Um, but what she suggests is to find something during your day where you can focus on just that thing. So in between patients, we're washing our hands, I'm assuming, and you're hoping that we're all washing our hands in between our patient care. So even if you only have a couple of minutes when you're washing your hands, just really think of listening to your breath and really feeling like the water and the soap and what that feels like in between your fingers and as you're washing. And so you're really focused on just that. You're not focused on, okay, what did I just do with this patient? And the next patient's coming in, what do I have to do? So it takes, you do that for two minutes. And that's all you need to do to kind of at least center you to go into the next patient. And that goes a long way from decreasing burnout and carrying that baggage with you all day. I mean, by the end of the day, you'd have like an elephant on your back, you know. And so it's just too much to carry. Um, And then the other thing that I do at the end of my day um, is I just have like a gratitude journal. So I'll just write three things that I'm thankful for that day. And it could be as little as... Um, my umbrella because it was pouring rain or my computer because I got to get work done or I went to dinner with a friend or I discovered a new TV show or whatever. So the point is it doesn't have to be like I'm thankful for, you know, my parents for really, it doesn't have to be this grand gesture of a thank you, but it could be something very small. And then that kind of, I think, also goes a long way to help with burnout because then at the end of the day you see how much you have and how much abundance you have in your life and you're grateful for that. You go to bed and then you can start the day fresh. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm a third-year student from the College of Staten Island in New York. Um, So many questions. One of the things, this is a little bit, this isn't necessarily specific to pain science, but when you have a patient in pain as a PT, what kind of like, how do you think about it in terms of diagnosis? Because we have to have a PT diagnosis. And generally speaking, in PT school, we're not taught how to, like, do that with pain patients. Like, you know, it's not like, oh, here's this way of diagnosing. It's like, oh, this person must have had this medical condition, like CRPS, you know. And we're not technically allowed to say that. 
I think. So I don't know, like in, at least where I'm at, I'm told I'm not allowed to say that. I might, I might need to rephrase your question just to make sure I get it right. Are, are you... Are you asking that when, so like when I get a new patient in, what diagnostic codes do I use on the evaluation and why do I decide to do that? Not codes per se, but like say, um, do you diagnose them based on like lack of mobility or like a force movement impairment? Yes, we, yes. yes, we do the, the things we can do because there are, there are like um, CRPS, that is a, a not a thing that a physical therapist has the tools to be able to diagnose, even if I can look at it and say, I would bet the finest steak dinner in Chicago that this is CRPS, that is not gonna be what I say. They will get referred to a physician to do the appropriate testing and do that accurately. Same with many pelvic conditions. It's like, I could be pretty sure, but it is not my role in the healthcare team to do that, and it can go horribly wrong. So I would instead defer that to a f- appropriate physician to be able to make that diagnosis. That's just where we are in the team. Um, that doesn't mean I ignore it. But then what? But then yeah, you're you're doing what is what's in our what are in our lanes. We know movement and sensory um, integration and and um, thoughts and beliefs and expectations about what you're going to do and um, and how to how to create your own program. All of those things are are part of what we can do. Um, patient-specific functional goals is probably my favorite of what can't you do, what would you like to do, let's figure out a plan to get you there. When you have somebody who presents with what looks like central sensitization, what's the, like, what's your thought process? How do you start with that? Like, say somebody has, like, weather sensitivity, you know, all the, like, I'm thinking, like, nidge rule, like that nidge what Joe Nidge wrote? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I pronounce his name it's four different tough ways. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So like that, <laughs> that uh, he had a, like a an article where he talked about how to like diagnose it, and following I followed that criterion clinic to to diagnose it. So, but I don't know what other people do. I, that's just um, I was curious where how do you start with that, or is it the same thing? Is it just looking at what can they do? What can't they do? Kind of working through that, like pain-free motion, and then building up over time mm-hmm. to loading them through what is tolerable until they can get more and more and more. I really love questions that you yeah, answered. I think yourself. you just yes. answered that. I think. I think. If someone is centrally sensitized or has symptoms of central sensitization, that is in no way changes anything that I'm going to do with that patient. I may explain to them why they're feeling pain in multiple areas of their body and give a plausible um, scientifically backed explanation for that. Um, but the physical aspects of what I'm going to do with that patient are going to be the same based on what their functional limitations are and, and and whether it's range of motion or functional or strength or agility or um, endurance but it, it's more the explanation to the patient of why you're doing X, Y, and Z and why they're feeling the way that they're feeling um, but I, it wouldn't in any way change my treatment plan unless I guess it depends on how sensitive. I mean, I 
was very centrally sensed, had a lot of symptoms of central sensitization when I was kind of at the peak of my pain experience. But it was to the point, I was very, very severe so that I ended up in the emergency room once um, just by having someone touch my knee and getting a pedicure felt like someone was like trying to scrape my skin off my feet but I still did it because I don't want to have gross feet girls got to wear some sandals you know but when I would leave there I'd have to lay down for an hour or two you know going to get my eyes checked would mean I'd have to take the rest of the day off work and or as the clinician, I think it's okay to give people permission to do that when they have these very complex pain situations. And because that's the way I like, because everyone always feels guilty. They're like, ah, well, I did this, and then, you know, it's not even has to do with my shoulder, but, and I had to take off, and I feel guilty. And so I like to give people permission to say, if you have to take that time for yourself like you said it's self-care then that's fine but that's the only way maybe in my treatment approach might be different than someone who doesn't have any symptoms of central sensitization is those people are just super super sensitive anything may increase that sensitivity and what is not sensitive to your eye might be a million times sensitive to that person and I think that has to be recognized and you have to tell that patient as such because they think they're going crazy and they're not going crazy they're just more sensitive and we have like plausible explanations for that that we can use and that's really helpful but as far as programming and stuff I don't know I I don't think it changes that much and do you I think that that this question has so many different ways we could go with it. The first being the pedantic way of let's define what we mean by central sensitization and is this term still in accepted use in the pain science world? Because the answer to that is no. There's some really interesting, and by that I mean I have a lot of reading to do, discussions going on um, about whether or not that's an accurate term to use. And in 2013... I was at a conference, Bert Messelink is a physician in Europe. Uh, he said that we should just stop that term uh, completely and call it central pain states because it's misleading. And after, as part of the transition from acute pain, pain to persistent pain, there is by definition some increased sensitivity in different cortical and spinal cord and peripheral areas. But those changes can happen automat- or rapidly after an acute injury as well. So we might be mislabeling what's going on. So hold lightly to your definition of central sensitization because it's probably going to be changing. So that's one way to go with that. Uh, so what? So if someone's centrally sensitized, they're going to be more sensitive. I'm going to start them where they are and get them back to normal. Um, so it's more for the explanatory model than a treatment technique. That's not a that's not a thing that you necessarily treat individually. It's more of a description of where that person is within their system and what what you might be doing. But then I'll go back to the pain catastrophizing scale, breaking things down into different subsets. Lets me know where to aim some of my treatment to address some of those top down mechanisms. Um, but it's still going to fall back to what does that look like? Education, movement, helping them reconceptualize what's going on. So 
That's a really good question, but I would say watch this space because I figure after IASP in Boston this year, we're all going to be changing our words, hopefully. have some rewriting to do. I recently spoke to a psychologist about this, but I wanted to hear your insight. If you have a patient who has chronic pain and you do feel they need behavioral intervention by a professional from that field, how do you propose it to your patients? Like, what are strategies that you use with your patients for that? Yeah. I mean, I... I ask them. <laughs> I ask them if they're seeing a psychologist or, or a mental health professional first. Um, and if they say no, then I may say that because I, I don't want people to think that I'm diagnosing them and thinking they're crazy um, because I'm not. But what I may say is I may go on my experience and say, you know, when I had a lot of pain, what really helped me was a combination of movement and exercise. And I worked with a a professional um, that really helped me to see things differently. And it was a huge help to me. So I will go off my own experience and so that I'm not, I'm not making it, making the patient feel like they're, there's something super wrong with them or there's something like they're super broken. So I'll just, I approach it that way because I have that history. Um, if you don't have that history, then you can just say, have you ever considered speaking to someone? Like, do you feel like maybe that might be helpful for you? And then they may answer and, and you know, I'll ask them like, well, what do you think? Do you think that it might be helpful if you spoke to someone about this? Because And I'll say, like, I'm not a psychologist. I'm here to listen, and I'm happy to do what I can do, but I can only go so far a little bit. Sometimes things are outside of my scope of practice, and I'm happy to help you and facilitate whatever you need from me whenever you're ready. What Karen said. Um, no, that, that's beautiful. I will, the asking them, are you, is there anyone, mm-hmm. this, you, could, you could imagine saying it like, We've talked about this a couple of times. It really seems like it's something that's, that's hard for you. Do you have anyone that you talk to about this? Um, and then I watch how they react to that because there is such a stigma attached to seeking psychological help and counseling and, and that it somehow means that you are less than or really broken or, or something. And I, there's a person I spoke with recently that felt like probably the best idea, but she would literally not be hired for the job she's applying for if there was anything on her record that said she sought counseling. So, so that's a problem. So you have people that have a need, and there's professionals that could meet that need, but there are barriers in the workplace or sociologically that prevent them from getting it. Um, sometimes it's a matter of that. And then, like, how about a pastor at your church? Or there are a lot of different ways to get help. But like many things, and I was using the example earlier this week of I know a little bit of vestibular rehab, but if what I know isn't helping, I need to refer them to someone who specializes in that. It's the same way with I kind of do CBT light is what I call it. Um, is I, I know how to do motivational energy interviewing techniques. I know how to incorporate some of the ACT and CBT techniques into my practice just woven through, not as a thing I am doing now. But 
I can only take them so far. And if they need more than what I know, then it's my responsibility to refer them to someone else. And that's usually how I do it, is say, look, I can tell that you're going to get better. And I think what's happening is you need someone with more skills or different skills or more ideas than I have. So here's some names of people I know in the area. If you don't know any, um, maybe go see if they can help uh, get you more ideas so that what we're doing works better is often how that gets presented. But it's not, wow, you're really broken. You need these people. Um, so in terms of uh, diving into the research and talking to some of the researchers, what are some of those um, barriers or challenges that they're facing? And then what are some of the um, struggles with uh, just applying that knowledge in the clinic? No, that's a, the challenges in the clinic I can, I can answer pretty well. Is you asking um, from a research perspective, what are some challenges for the researchers? Uh, I guess as far as like what, what you know from the people that you've spoken with. That's exceptionally broad. Funding. <laughs> that's like, that would be the what, funding because there's a lot of people there's groups around the world that are doing really good research on um, what is the nature of pain what there's a gentleman and I can't remember his name I apologize that is his line of research is on why would an individual hurt so two people go down the street they sprain their ankles one of them ends up with pain three months later and the other one can't even remember they did it by the next day. Why? With the same amount of tissue damage and problems. What makes that one person predisposed? And so he's doing some phenomenal research. The challenge is always um, getting enough people to power your studies, getting enough funding to power your studies, um, those kind of things. And research is slow because you have to ask an answerable question that actually has meaning. Um, and you have to do research right. You can't say, like, I think that what we do in the clinic works, so let me set up a program to prove it. That's the opposite of research. Um, so you have to find a, an answerable question that you then try really hard to disprove. And if it survives that, then you might know something. And then you move on to the next step. And I think that from a clinician standpoint, we get, I know I used to get really frustrated with how slow that process was. Because what I want to know right now is how to help that person best. Um, but that's on us to just read a lot and talk to each other a lot um, and to, to remember the claim of if you're going to make great claims of effectiveness, you better have great data and proof of that because otherwise it's, it's not actually real. Um, applying the research in the clinic I think is fun, but I learned that I'm weird. Um, I think the, the so what of reading the research is great, and that's what Corey and I do on the Pain Science and Sensibility podcast is, okay, we're going to read this research. Now let's do this dive into a so what does this mean? Can I use this clinically, or is it just imp- interesting? Or is it something that's going to inform how I might make my choices, but it's not really something I'm going to use clinically? Um, so they go into different buckets like that. There is no paper out there that's going to say, here's how you're going to treat Sue on her appointment next week you're gonna just have to know a lot um but luckily it's fun what you can take from research is you can certainly take concepts it doesn't have to be exactly what they did in a research environment is not going to be what you see in the clinic but you take concepts and you take the relevant pieces of that and you apply that to your patient population and you apply that to your practice. My last question is, have you noticed with your pain patients that those that come in with a lot of pain or develop CRPS, that they're the ones that are under constant stress, like being micromanaged at work, or is it variable amongst 
a whole bunch of other factors. Variable. I'd say that's correlated, not causative, is that it can happen in the same person, but it doesn't yeah. need to. I'd find out by asking. <laughs> yeah. There are times when, just like with anyone, even if we don't have CRPS, if we're under stressful conditions, then it manifests itself in something. You know, if you have pain, it's going to maybe it manifests itself in pain. So can stress increase pain? Yes. Do you... If, if the patient comes in and says to you, oh, God, my pain is so much worse today. I don't know. I don't really know why. That's when you would ask and you would say, well, let's talk about your day. Let's talk about how much sleep. I always say, well, how much sleep did you get last night? What did you have to eat? What did you have to eat? Um, and they say, well, tell me about your day. Like, did you get to work on time? What was the commute like? What was, and then all of a sudden, you, you, you hear, well, I only slept for four hours, I got up late, I couldn't eat breakfast, my commute was late, I got into work late, and I missed a deadline, and this, and I'm like, well, I think that maybe, do you think that, and then, do you think maybe that could have caused some stress to your day? And they're like, oh, I didn't even think about it. Maybe. And you're like, okay, so this, these are some reasons that maybe why you're having a little bit more pain, you know? So I, you're always trying to look for plausible reasons why the pain may be worse and some days there are none you know you got all the sleep you ate well you exercised and the pain is worse but I think digging in and asking those open-ended questions will give you all the answers that you need and FYI that takes all of like five minutes it doesn't mean you're sitting for a half an hour. It takes five minutes to ask those questions. You can, you can get the answer while you do other things, too. Yeah. So, so all of this interaction and talking, like I say, it's woven into treatment. Mm -hmm. It's not this linear, okay, we have checked, talked about this, and checked, talked about that. It's all, it's all fluid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's important because a lot of people think, well, you're just going to talk your patients out of pain. No, you're not. I'm doing pain education. Yeah, it's not like that. It's woven in, and it doesn't take a lot of time. So I think that's important to think about. I hear on the interwebs people saying that treating like persistent pain is really hard. Um, I I conceptually understand that, but I don't. I can't imagine thinking that because I I find the uh, working with people in pain to be uh, challenging, fun, rewarding, interesting, because they're so motivated to get better, and they're so darn brave for getting to you in the first place. So it's a, just that they came in means that they are have hope, they're motivated, they're going to try, and trying might just be walking for two minutes that day or getting dressed. Um, or getting out of bed. Or getting out of bed. Mm -hmm. And the scale, like the scale of effort is, is just different, it's shifted. But it, it can be as hard to, I want you to try and take the train into treatment instead of a cab, because that involves a lot more standing and and If you live things. in the metropolitan area. Yeah, in Chicago, <laughs> trying to take the train in. Let's preface that. Um, <laughs> that. That can be the challenge that they're going to do today. And that could be the same as telling me, okay, I want you to go try and run 10 miles today. It's like, wow, that's a lot of work. I'm going to be really tired afterwards. They will have that same I, I did this, I'm really tired afterwards, I need a nap. Well, yeah, because you worked really hard. And pain is exhausting. It is. It's exhausting. Like, when you have pain, it's exhausting. It makes everything harder. It makes everything the, harder. You know, it makes getting dressed harder. It makes going to work harder. It makes... Concentrating. When I had a lot of pain, like, I couldn't even go grocery shopping. Like, that was off the table. 
you know so you have this all these layers of where you need like what sleep food closing like Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs higher, well I should say battery Wi-Fi food clothing <laughs> I think battery and Wi-Fi is on the bottom so I sit here trying to charge my phone um, but but when you have patients who've had very long-term persistent pain that's hard nourishing yourself so sleeping is hard all of that stuff is very difficult and and I think if you can be the person for that patient to listen to them to offer good solid advice to help them take uh, control over their life versus the pain controlling their life and being able to really get them to understand that they're not fragile and they're not broken and they're not damaged goods that's going to go a long way to getting them better without even putting your hands on them, without having them loaded tissue. So if you can get to that point in your patient relationship and create that alliance with them as soon as possible, then you're probably going to have some decent outcomes. And just making eye contact and saying, after they tell you what they're afraid of and what's what they've with their conception of what's going on with them is just making eye t- contact and saying you know what you're going to be okay we're going to help you get through this can you can just watch them be like, like they don't even need you details to, to like you know you didn't freak out you didn't go oh my god this is going to be really hard um but thankfully i am an expert in this and um it's the, the we're going to get through this there's this makes sense we understand it biologically you're not crazy you're not broken you don't have to just think positively and have it all go away yeah, um, that does not work the if you just weren't stressed you wouldn't hurt that's not true um the those kind of things unscaring someone and giving them a path to follow and sign marks along the way to be able to recognize that they're getting better um, and then being there to, to walk through it with them is, is really all we do. <laughs> but it looks different for everyone. That's the framework, the, the principles that you follow for it. Um, and that's that gets um, never going to be dull because every single person is different. From the patient experience side, what are some of your success stories or um, anything that you want to share as far as... Um, You've tried something with a patient, that's what they did, and, and just going through their whole kind of care and just any any surprises or anything that you want to share. Uh, that's an entire recording <laughs> on its own. Uh, I'm going to cheat and say that there is a lovely episode on Karen Litzy's podcast with Aaron Jackson. Um, that was a good success story. You know, instead of looking at... at Patients, and you know, you have successes and failures because not every PT gets everyone better. No. I mean, that's the highlight reel on social media, but let's be real here. Patients sometimes don't get better, they fall off or they disappear, they get, they get worse. They, I mean, this happens. But my biggest, I guess, success story treating a person with persistent pain is just my, my own, would be myself. Because I did go from being someone who couldn't get out of bed and who couldn't go to work. Uh, Not every day, but definitely like five days a month for eight, nine years. I stopped going out with friends. I withdrew. I, you know, I had someone, um, Allison Sim, interviewed me for her her book mm-hmm. and she was like so what how would you describe those years and it just came out of my like I didn't think about it and I was like a waste 
think about when you're treating your patients, even as they get better, when they look back, if they feel like eight to 10 years of their life was a waste, there's still a lot to unpack there. The, the, I, I talked about signposts. Um, the, it's watching someone get better. You can see, like I can see that they're getting better before they can see they're getting better. There's tissue quality changes. There's things they could do they couldn't do before. You can, you can see that. But they're still sensitized and not normal and in pain and they haven't reached that threshold will they all feel it so even though we can see them approaching it they can't yet so there's a lot of trust involved but then there's this really cool thing that's i learned from a patient it was called an inflection point that i look for in treatment where they a person w- will expect that they will hurt and they will expect that things will be hard and they will expect that the days are going to be hard and they'll have good days that they think are flukes or they did something and it worked, and they're like, well, that's, that's just weird. That's a fluke. And then this thing happens where they expect to be okay, and they expect it to work well, and they get pissed off when they hurt or it doesn't work. And I love that point because it means that they have changed the, the fundamental thought process inside themselves where instead of expecting it to be painful, they expect it to be okay. And that's huge. Um, it happens. It, it is, it's part of it. It's one of the things that we know, like, and we're over that spot um so now your your thoughts and beliefs and expectations are going in the other direction i know it goes back and forth Mm -hmm. but the first time i see it i get to be like really celebrating of yes um it's a a win and i'll point it out because if you want to get really geeky into the the philosophy of pain and human stuff you can read andy clark's uh work and the surfing uncertainty is one of my favorite how to make my head go a little numb from thinking too hard book of because he talks about that of the expectations of waking up in the morning and expecting that by lunch you're going to hurt that there is already um, measurable physiological changes and increased circulation and increased pro-inflammatory mediators and probably movement pattern changes that you're running before you even get out of bed in the morning um, because of the expectation that you're going to hurt at night so I love it when I can flip that because it's like wow what's not happening you're not running the as much of all of those top-down procedures, which will make things work better. I don't usually explain that to patients because most of them aren't that geeky into physiology. I do. I do, but yeah. It depends, it depends. But yeah, and there, there is something to that, you know, waking up and like, wait, um, I don't have pain, this is weird. And then after it happens, for, for me, it probably took three months of waking up without pain to feel like it wasn't a fluke. That's a long time. It's not like it's once you wake up without oh, a fluke. You it, it took a good amount of time for me to wake up each morning and be like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't have pain. This is good. And I'm still not at the point yet where, like, I'm still kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Not as much as I used to be. But there are times where I'll feel something. I'm like, okay, I'm just waiting because it's going to be painful, and it's not. It's, and that's taken five years to feel like I'm pretty much back to the way I used to be. So that took, you know, well, maybe not five years, maybe three years, three years of feeling like the other shoe's going to drop at one point and I'm going to be back into that state that I was in before because it's traumatic. It's a, it's, it's a good a, question, but it's it's that it's hard. And, and I my question for researchers is when people have persistent pain for years and years and then they're not in pain, then what do you do? 
from a psychological standpoint, how is the, are there ways to support those people through that shift of being in pain? Because don't forget, your being in pain is a huge part of your identity. That's how you identify yourself. How do you then transition that person from having pain being 100% part, if not the forefront of their identity, to now not being part of their identity anymore? Where do you fill that space? So what happens in that space, and, and how do you keep that person from living still on edge and still having stress about their situation, even though they don't have the pain anymore because they're just waiting for it to come back. I have the clinical non-researched way that I do that of saying, as I call it, supported independence of, of you, you are, you really don't need me. And, but I'm here if you need me. Uh, So go do the things, go play yoga, go to the gym, go play yoga, go do all of the things that you do. Um, And if if it's a flare that you can't manage or if it's a thing that you have concern about, please come back and don't don't wait until it's really horrible. Just call me or email me and come back and I will support you through this period. Trying to get to that. But I have nothing other than it seems like a nice thing to do to back up my reasoning. Mm-hmm. Do you have any parting words? Wow. Um, if you are interested in learning more about pain, neuroscience, where the research is going, we have an opportunity coming up this year with the World Congress on Pain in Boston. It's part of the International Association for the Study of Pain. And I don't say this lightly, and I also don't get any money for saying it. But if you are really interested in pain, you should be a member of IASP because you'll get access to the journal Pain. You'll get some great updates. They have amazing resources for clinicians. And you get an opportunity to have the clinicians and the researchers talk to each other. Um, it's a fantastic conference. I and the it. conference is in Boston, and it's the weekend of the 14th of September. Thank you for having us, and hopefully this hearing from Sandy, who's more of a pain expert, quote-unquote, than I am, and hearing from someone who's had pain, hopefully people have a better idea as to how they can be a guide and a facilitator for their patients with pain. Pain is normal. Yeah. Yeah. We all all get it. Uh It's there for a reason. It's not supposed to be sustained. So, but we can be here to help you when it's lasting longer than it's supposed to. A big thank you to Matt Viegas for putting all of this together. And again, didn't those students ask some great questions? And of course, to Sandy Hilton for sharing her knowledge on pain. I hope that you all have a little bit better insight into when you go to treat those patients with pain as a result of this conversation. So everyone have a great weekend and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.